Those words of Psalm 45 are such a wonderful picture of the ideal king. Speaking uh, later on in Israel's history, once the Davidic king had been established of the Lord's anointed, but we see it predicted back in Genesis 49, which is where we turn tonight for our Old Testament text. Genesis 49, I'm going to read verses 1 through 27, and we'll save the rest of the chapter for next Lord's Day, Lord willing, when we tackle chapter 50 as well. So Genesis 49, 1 through 27. And Jacob called his sons and said, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, unstable as water. You shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Excuse me. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw the rest was good. And that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you. 
and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. And now over to our New Testament text, Romans 1, 1 through 7. Here we read of the one born of David, David's line, who of course was born of Judah's line, our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through Him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for His holy word. Let's pray and ask Him to bless it to our hearts. Our gracious God, we thank You for Your holy Scriptures, which are the lamp to our feet, and the light to our path. Lord, without Your Word, we stumble along in the darkness of unbelief and of sin and of suffering. So bring Your Word and shine its light to our path and illumine the way we should go and train us to walk in Your ways and show us our Lord Jesus Christ and strengthen our faith in Him. We pray it in His name. Amen. Just before my dad's dad, my grandfather on my dad's side, passed away, um, his mind seemed to suddenly get really clear, crystal clear. And uh, he seemed to know that it was just about time for him to go. And so he, he, he was, at the time, living in my parents' house. Uh, so he, he, he wanted everyone to come around and, and see him. And we all gathered around, and, and he spoke to us. And it was, it was this wonderful moment of clarity that we hadn't seen from him in, in, in quite a while. And it was precious to, to be all together around this patriarch of the family and to hear his words to us. It's like he was giving us words to hang on to uh, after we were gone. I'll never forget uh, what, what he said. He said, I'll see you all in the new day. 
speaking of, of, of the new day of the resurrection, that he would see us again. Words of blessing and hope and encouragement to us as he was saying goodbye. That's very much the scene of Genesis 49. Uh, Jacob is on his deathbed. He's, he's weak, he's frail, he's old. 147 years old. Uh, that, that, that's pretty good. Um, uh, he knows it's his time. Uh, in chapter 48, just previously, he's spoken with Joseph and his sons, Ephraim and, and Manasseh. Now he calls all the family together. Um, he wants, in a sense, to say goodbye, but it's so much more than him just saying goodbye to his, to his sons. He wants to give them words that will sustain their faith. And not just their faith, but, but, but their descendants' faith. They're going to be in Egypt for a long time. They're going to go through some very hard things in Egypt. Their their descendants are going to be enslaved in Egypt. They're going to be 400 years here waiting to get to the promised land. And they're going to need a good word of, of encouragement and strengthening to keep their faith through those hard days ahead. And so he speaks to them. He speaks not only his word, But really, it's God's word, words about what will happen to them in the future, words of authority from from God. Uh, Some of his words might strike us as a little strange, perhaps not the kinds of things we would say uh, on our deathbed to our children or grandchildren. Uh, Some of his some of his language is just a little odd and unfamiliar to us. Right. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Probably not what I'll say to to, to my boys uh, when it's my time. Um, other, some others, he says here, sound pretty harsh. Um, Reuben, Simeon, Levi. Uh, I mean, he, he speaks a curse here in, in verses 5 through 7. He says, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. For their wrath, it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So not necessarily words that we might think to say, but by the Holy Spirit, the right words. Words that weave together for us both warnings and blessings to strengthen our faith, uh, which, which needs such strengthening, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? Their faith, in their context, they needed that strengthening as they're facing many long years and many generations waiting for God to fulfill His promises. And so are we, waiting for God to fulfill His promises to us. What strengthens us? It's the Word of God coming. And Genesis 49 gives us wonderful, wonderful buttresses for our faith to keep it from giving out. We're going to look through this chapter together and, and Jacob's words then under that, that, uh, under that point. We're not going to go through it quite in order. Uh, Jacob moves through the sons more or less in, in birth order uh, with, with an exception or two. But uh, we're going to look at it in a couple of different ways just to look at some of the big themes. Uh, four lessons here that will organize our thinking as we work through this. Four lessons to strengthen faith as we wait for the fulfillment of the promises. Number one, don't forfeit the promise, but don't forget the mercy of God. This is verses 3 through 7. Don't forfeit the promise, but don't forget the mercy of God. Jacob's opening words are full of warning. Um, They're hard to call blessings at all. He starts with Reuben, his oldest son. Reuben, his firstborn. Reuben should have been the preeminent son, the son of his strength, the the most excellent, the the leader. But Jacob says he's unstable 
as water. What's, what's more unstable than water? You a cup of water on the table, you just walk by and you can see it tremble. Uh, think, think of water in, in, in nature, right? It's always moving. The, the surface is never perfectly still, right? The, 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 the waves of the sea, the, 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 the flowing of the river, it's, it's unpredictable and it's tumultuous. And in, in the ancient Near East, it represents chaos and instability. And um, that's Reuben. That's Reuben. That, that's his moral character. He had intercourse with his father's concubine, an act of terrible rebellion, adultery, an act of sin and dishonor. And so Jacob says, there's a consequence for this. Your descendants won't have preeminence among Israel. You won't have pride of place. They won't have the pride of place. And when they are brought into the promised land, Reuben and the tribe of Reuben is on the outskirts of Israel. It's on the far side of the Jordan and more vulnerable to, to attack. And their importance in Israel's story quickly, quickly fades. And then Jacob addresses Simeon and Levi. They're hardly any better. Um, their, their, their sin committed together is told to us in Genesis 34. You probably remember the story. It's hard to forget. It's one you'd like to forget. But, um, but their, their, their sister, Dinah, is raped. And they respond by, by going out and deceiving the entire city of Shechem, pretending to be friends, and then coming in a surprise attack and slaughtering all the men in the city. It's an act of uh, deceit. It's an act of violence. And so Jacob says, verse 6, Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let me not be uh, associated with them. They've brought shame on the family. Um, and there's a consequence for their sin as well. Uh, they're going to be scattered in the promised land. And that ends up happening. Simeon is a small tribe and it gets its, uh, it gets its inheritance inside of Judah and, and eventually just disappears into Judah. And then Levi, of course, the Levites are scattered throughout the land. They don't get an inheritance portion to them in the land. Loved ones, these words are a warning. Uh, they're, they're, they're warning us that sins have long consequences. These sins, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, happened decades before, but, but they're still having this effect on their lives. I don't think Jacob is just being bitter about it, refusing to forgive and forget. I think he has forgiven, but, but he is aware that the consequences of sin, even of forgiven sin, still have a long, long reach. And that's not just for them, it's for their children and their children's children. This goes on for generations, the consequences of their sins. Numbers 14.18, among many other verses, tells us the Lord is slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Our actions have a lot of weight. We rightly say that God is sovereign, and, and we put a lot of weight on God's decrees and his sovereignty over all human actions. But brothers and sisters, that does not in any way lessen the weight of human action too. It actually upholds it. God treats our choices and our actions with seriousness. I think much more seriousness than we usually treat our choices and our actions. We, we trivialize our sin. 
We trivialize our choices. But even the smallest sin is cutting against the moral character of God Himself. It's flying in the face of the whole way He's made the universe as an act of rebellion against the Creator of it all. And it has tremendous weight. And, and our actions, they have a tremendous permanence about them. You, you can't take it back. You can't get the word you said back. You can't take back that, 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 that thing you did. And so this is a warning to us. Treat your actions with, with, with seriousness. Take care to watch yourself and guard yourself and, and stay faithful for your own sake and for your children's sake and your children's children's sake. If you don't, um, if you don't, you'll forfeit the promises of God. As we see here uh, with Reuben, Simeon, Levi, being in the covenant family doesn't give them immunity from sin's consequences. Uh, they do receive an inheritance by the grace of God. They do have a place in the family. But the warning here is clear that watch out. Because if you go on your sin, you will lose the promise. We see this with so many of the generations of Israelites going forward, particularly I think of the Jews of Jesus' day, children of the covenant, children of the promise. But they reject Christ and they forfeit the blessing of God. We read in Hebrews 6 these warnings. To us, it is impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Loved ones, don't, don't presume on the promises of God. Don't say, well, I, I have a place in the covenant family. I've, I've been baptized. I'm a, I'm a member of the church. I'm all set. I don't need to pay too much attention to the way that I live uh, because this, this text gives us a strong warning to the contrary. We need to pay careful, careful attention. And yet at the same time, as I said just a moment ago, the text opens with this warning. Um, don't forfeit the promises. But also, even here there's grace, isn't there? Don't, 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 don't think at all that it's up to you that even if you have forfeited the promises, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, you're still in the covenant. So, 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 so stay faithful, repent, and, 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 and trust what God has given you. In fact, um, even, even this word of Jacob's that Levi is going to be scattered throughout the promised land gets turned into something gracious because they're the ones, by the grace of God, who are made the priesthood. And it's because of that they don't get an inheritance in the land itself. And God says to them, I'm your inheritance. And so even if you're in a position where you've almost forfeited the promises, the grace of God is still sufficient if you turn to Him. That's the first lesson here. The second lesson, trust God's promise, but don't get lazy. That's the second lesson. Verses, verses 13 through 21, and then verse 27 also. Trust God's promise, but don't get lazy. We'll skip over Judah. We'll come back to him we're going to look at Jacob's words to his other sons here. Uh, the, the, the dominant note in these verses here is God's promise is certain, that the inheritance that he's promised to give his people is certain and that, it, that it's good. Jacob wants his sons to know this. As, as we said, they're going to be in Egypt for a while. 
the promised land is far away, and as, they, as the generations that come become enslaved, it's going to look impossible for them ever to get back to the promised land and receive that inheritance. And so Jacob is saying in these verses, sons, your inheritance is certain. God has guaranteed it. Um, he tells Zebulun, verse 13, about his inheritance. He tells, he tells Dan that he'll be among the tribes of Israel. That's the first time that language is used in Scripture. You'll be among the tribes of Israel, this family of, of God. Uh, this is, the, this is a pointing to the day when they'll be much more numerous than they are right now. Right now, they're few, but they're going to be many. God's going to fulfill His promise to multiply them and make them a great nation. He says to Gad, uh, whose name means something like troop, uh, that he'll come under attack by a troop, but he'll prevail against them. He'll, he'll be, be under attack, but he'll defend it, and he'll keep his inheritance. That's the sense here, that he'll defend it. He speaks of Asher. Asher is going to enjoy the riches of the promised land. He'll, he'll, he'll eat of the goodness of the promised land. Naphtali will have, will have many children. And then Benjamin, verse 27, will be a mighty warrior protecting the promised land. Right, all these all these promises, they're like little pieces of a mosaic that you fit together to see the picture of what's going on, or maybe a better image would be. They're pixels that come together on the screen to show you the image. That, that, that is that uh, God's blessing is full and it's certain. He's going to keep those promises He made to you, Israel. He's going to multiply you. He's going to bring you into the land. He's going to lavish you with good. He's going to defeat all your enemies. What a word of comfort and encouragement to them as they wait for this fulfillment. Loved ones, it's the good fight of the faith that they fought that we also need to fight. Um, we have troubles and trials and waiting, and we're in the gap between the promise of God and the fulfillment of that promise. We are in the wilderness, if you will, of danger and doubt and difficulty. And so we need to look at the promise. Our, eyes, our, we, our hearts get distracted by the circumstances. This thing that I'm worried about, and this thing that I'm worried about, and this thing that's overwhelming, and that. But God's Word says, listen to the promise. Keep your eyes and your heart settled on that. Our Lord Jesus says to us, I will come again and will take you to Myself that where I am, there you may be also. Your inheritance is sure, it's certain, and it's good. I'll take you to Myself. Jesus Himself has said it to us. So let's not neglect that promise. Trust that promise. Rest in it. At the same time, don't get lazy as you rest in the promise. We see this with Issachar. He's the one we didn't look at yet here in these verses. Issachar, we're told, is like a strong donkey. He's, he, he's got strength. He's got potential to be very useful. Um, but he's, he's placed between these burdens and the image is that he's this donkey that won't get up. He's just going to sit between these burdens. He's not going to stand up and carry them, even though he's strong and able to do so. He'd rather rest. He'd rather indulge than, than work. The result is that he becomes enslaved. That's, that's the warning here. The warning is... Don't, yeah, yes, trust the promises, rest in the sovereign certainty of them, but don't get lazy. Loved ones, God has given us wonderful privileges. He has equipped you with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, and He's filled you with resurrection life and given you gifts to use as you wait for Him. 
That's the second lesson here. The third. Trust God Almighty who brings His people from suffering to glory. Trust God Almighty who brings us from suffering to glory. This is Jacob's words about Joseph in verses 22 through 26. There is profound comfort in these verses. Jacob looks at Joseph and he traces the trajectory of his, of his life. He compares him to a victim who's been attacked by archers. Um, but verse 24 then shows that the attacks of these archers did not destroy him, that God came near and God strengthened him. God was with him. We get this wonderful pileup of God of, of, of language about, about God in verses 24 and 25. It says this, But Joseph's bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. This wonderful image. Joseph is under attack, is the image from these archers, and, and, and his hands might grow weak on their own, but God comes with his almighty hand, and he puts his hand right over, right over Joseph's hand and strengthens him and sustains him and helps him. And the verse continues. It calls the Lord the shepherd and the stone of Israel. He's, he's the one who leads and guides and protects. He's the refuge of Joseph. He's the one who's with him and saves him. And so that, 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 that's how the trajectory of Joseph's life starts, right? Under attack uh, uh, in, in a low place, but God doesn't just protect him and bring him out of that attack. He advances him to this place of highest blessing. Notice how the language goes on with the scope of the blessings of verses 25 and 26. It says, By the God of your Father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. Jacob says, every blessing from heaven above to the deeps under the earth, right? A merism, when you have these two contrasting things and you mean everything in between them. Uh, he's saying, everything, every blessing in the universe is for Joseph. God Almighty is, is aiming every good gift he has at Joseph. That's the sense. He will be blessed like no one before him. This is, this, is the, this is the trajectory he's tracing. Joseph starts here, this low place, humble place, under attack. God delivers him and he brings him to this place of highest imaginable blessing. From suffering to glory. This is a trajectory. We, we, we see this theme all over the Old Testament. We see it in David's life. Right? King David, he's anointed as king at a young age, but he doesn't immediately walk into the palace and sit on the throne and start ruling. You know, he goes through years of being pursued and, uh, for his life in the wilderness by Saul. He's hunted, he's attacked, but the Lord shepherds him. The Lord is his rock and his refuge, just like he was for Joseph. And when it's time, he brings him up at last to the throne and sets him above all Israel. This is the trajectory of Israel's national experience, isn't it? Slaves in Egypt. They're brought low. They're humbled. They're suffering. But then God brings them out. And He brings them into the land of blessing and He gives them all good things. This is the pattern we see all over 
the Bible, suffering and then glory. It's the pattern that we see in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all pointing to him. This is what we say, uh, see in 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 10 through 11. Peter describes Christ's life under, under the same trajectory, with these same two acts, suffering, then glory. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Like David, Israel, Joseph, suffering, act one. Glory, act two. What does this mean for us? We're in union with Christ, aren't we? By by faith, brought into union with this Savior. All that is His becomes ours including those two acts. The trajectory of his life, that's the trajectory of our life too. First the wilderness, then the promised land. First the cross, and then the crown. This is, this, this is why even after you come to faith in Christ and you are filled with, with new life in Christ, resurrection life, you're still suffering. And things are still hard and confusing, bewildering sometimes, and painful. Uh, our, our life, the Christian life, is not, is not a glorious upward climb. It's, it's down into the valley sometimes. That, that, that's the main trajectory. A cross-shaped life. Our whole life is that, brothers and sisters. Not just a little pocket of difficulty here, a little pocket of pain there. But our life is under this umbrella of humiliation now, glory coming. We are with our Lord Jesus in the Calvary Road. We're with Joseph in Egypt. We're with the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness waiting for the promised land. So what's the hope that gets you through to glory? Same as Joseph's hope was. Same hope that Jacob is pressing on his children here and and wants passed on to his grandchildren and great-grandchildren as they wait, slaves in Egypt, for what God has ahead of them. Listen to Jacob's words to Joseph. These words apply to him, as we've seen. They, They apply to our Lord Jesus. And they apply to you. The archers attacked him, shot at him, and were hostile towards him. Yet his bow remained steady and his strong arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, by the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, by the God of your father who helps you, and by the almighty who blesses you. Even as it was for Joseph and our Lord Jesus Christ, so it is for us. Even in the challenges and the strife and the difficulty, the Lord, the shepherd, our God almighty comes near and he lays his hand on us. And he cares and he protects, he defends and he rescues And he gives us this guarantee that his power and his presence will see us through to that glorious inheritance that is ahead of us. That's where we rest. That's the third lesson here. And the fourth and final lesson is is this. Praise the Lion of the tribe of Judah, through whom all these promises come true. Praise the Lion of the tribe of Judah, through whom all these promises come true. This is verses 8 through 12. 
There's one more blessing we haven't looked at yet. We, we skipped over Judah. And I want to go back and, and look at his now. I've saved it for last because this is the one that all the others depend on. All the other blessings. How does God bring them to pass? Well, he brings them to pass through the one who's raised up through Judah. In a minor way, it's fulfilled with David and then Solomon partially as well after him. But then, right, it's all pointing forward to our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of of Judah. Verses 8 and 9 first here. We see that through Judah, Israel's enemies will be destroyed. Verse 8 says, Judah's hand shall be on the neck of his enemies. What What an image. For, 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 for someone conquering someone else. We see this, a similar image in, in uh, the book of Joshua as Joshua comes into the promised land and he conquers some of, the, some of the, the, the people there and he lays the kings in the dust and he says to his men, put your feet on their necks. Right? They're, they're completely under your control. They've been crushed and destroyed and they're powerless. Uh, through, through Judah, through, through the one God will raise up through Judah, the enemies of God's people will be crushed forever. He's the, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is fulfilled as the people come into the promised land in part. It's fulfilled in David, the one descended from Judah as he, as he brings down mighty Goliath. But it's fulfilled most of all in our Lord Jesus, whom, as we read earlier, Revelation 5 calls the lion of the tribe of Judah. Our Lord Jesus is the gentle, meek, and lowly, mild lamb Revelation says he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. As strong and fierce and warlike as he is tender, meek, and gentle. Um, He is the one who comes with all the fearsomeness of God himself in wrath on the enemies of his people to destroy every last one, to crush the serpent's head. The point of that violence, that holy violence that our Lord Jesus Christ brings is not just to demonstrate his raw power, um, but it's, it's about securing and protecting the blessing for his people. That, that, that's what this blessing to Judah is describing, that there's going to be one who's going to, who's going to lead you in securing the land that God has promised, this blessing that, that's what it's about. That's what defeating Israel's enemies is about. It's about protecting, securing the land so the people can enjoy it and, and live in God's holy place. And so it is with, with our Lord Jesus Christ. He comes to crush death, to give us resurrection life in the presence of God. He comes to defeat Satan, to bring us into the kingdom of God's glorious light. And he defeats sin to bring us into God's holy presence. He defeats all our enemies so that we can have that wonderful fellowship in the inheritance that is ours. That's the first thing we see here under Judah's blessing. Second, we see that through Judah's line, an eternal kingdom will come. The Hebrew of verse 10 is a bit challenging. Different translations take it slightly different ways. I read three different translations, uh, compared them, and, and they all said three different things. But they were all saying one thing, and that, was, that one thing was clear. The main point is clear. The kings will come from Judah's line. Even a, 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 a king that lasts forever is the sense. And that all the nations will come and bow before him. 
And we see this fulfilled a bit in David, a bit in Solomon, but, but most of all in our Lord Jesus Christ, who comes and says the kingdom of heaven is here. And our, the promise is all tribes and tongues and nations come in obedience to him. Third thing here, Judah's descendant will have, will have great wealth, we're told in verse 11. There's this wonderful image, a funny image, isn't it? Verse 11, it talks about this donkey of Judah's that will be tied to the choice vine. Um, who would tie a donkey to a choice vine? What's the donkey going to do to the vine? He's going to enjoy it for lunch, right? The choice vine won't last very long. Uh, a, a very similar image is the next one right down. He, he's washing his clothes in wine. Who would do that? Well, someone who has plenty of clothes and plenty of wine, right? For, for whom it's no big deal to, to give the choice vine to the donkey. He's got a thousand choice vines. And he's got, he's got all the wealth he could wish for. That's the, that's the sense here. This is the one who is going to have great wealth. So much wealth that wealth won't matter to him. We're told of King Solomon that in his day, silver was as common as stones. We're told of our Lord Jesus Christ that the streets will be paved with gold. Right? Oh, that's just the pavement. The point here is this, that all the lavish blessings that the infinitely creative God can conceive of, he will give to his king to lavish on his people. And then fourth, Judah's descendant will be surpassingly lovely. We're given this image in verse 12, a poetic picture of ideal physical beauty and health. We're told his eyes are darker than wine, his teeth are whiter than milk. The idea is this king will be perfect. There won't be a, there won't be a flaw in him. Uh, this is the one of whom we sang earlier in Psalm 45, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. That's how it puts it. First Samuel 17 tells us David was handsome in appearance. Um, but this verse is pointing out an ideal that is much more than that, right? Than just outward appearance. This is talking about, about the, the perfection of all that God made man to be. This is talking about the, the, the one who will be the perfect king, the perfect savior, who will, who will give us a, a better salvation than anything we could imagine. We're told about our Lord Jesus in Isaiah 52, 14, that his appearance was not much. It says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That's our Lord Jesus. That's the one who's, who, who is more beautiful than all the sons of men, whose eyes are dark as wine and teeth are white as milk. That, that's the one whose perfect beauty shines forth from his disfigured face because of his perfect obedience and his, and his deathless love for his people. And, and, and so the, 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 there's this wonderful hint here of this one who will come as the ideal Savior who will give His people all that God has to give, who will give them every good and perfect gift from God, who will, who will deliver us from sin, death, hell, the curse, guilt forever and ever and bring us into the glorious inheritance of heaven. John Flavel, Puritan writer I've been reading a lot of this year, has a series of sermons on our Lord Jesus Christ, his person and his work. And in the introduction to his sermons, he writes this. He says, I write his praises but by moonlight. I cannot praise him so much as by halves. 
What shall I say of Christ? The excelling glory of our Lord dazzles all apprehension, swallows up all expression. When we have borrowed metaphors from every creature that has any excellency, till we have stripped the whole creation bare of all its ornaments and clothed Christ with all that glory, when we have even worn out our tongues in ascribing praises to Him, we've done nothing when all is done. See, we cannot praise Him half what He deserves. And this, loved ones, is what lies at the heart of this, of these blessings that Jacob gives to his sons. At the heart of his last words to his son, uh, to, to, to all his sons, as he tries to steal their resolve and their faithfulness for the long days of waiting ahead, he's saying, keep looking ahead for that one. That, that, that Messiah, that Christ who's going to come, the one in whom all your salvation is contained and found. And keep looking ahead. Loved ones, we look back. We see so much of His glory. And we look forward to when He comes again. Your Messiah's surpassing in loveliness is coming. So steady your faith. Keep on in Him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You. We thank You for the wonderful way that You come and speak to us words of warning, words of promise, words of blessing, and You point us over and over to our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep our hearts fixed on Him. Help us to walk in lockstep with His Spirit. Strengthen us as we suffer unto glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.